As we continue through the book of Psalms, God speaks to us today from Psalm 103. If you wish to follow along, you may use the Red Pew Bibles in front of you. My Bible gives a theme for each psalm. If you were here last week, Psalm 88's theme was, when there is no relief in sight, God understands even our deepest misery. This week, Psalm 103's theme is God's great love for us. What God does for us tells what he is really like. Listen to God's word. Praise the Lord, O my soul. All my inmost being, praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion, who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is reserved like the eagles. The, Lord's, the Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. The wind blows over it, and it is gone, and its place remembers it no more. But from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him and his righteousness with their children's children, with those who keep his covenant and remember to obey his precepts. The Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. Praise the Lord, you his angels, you mighty ones who do his bidding, who obey his word. Praise the Lord, all his heavenly hosts, you his servants who do his will. Praise the Lord, all his works, everywhere in his dominion. Praise the Lord, O oh my soul. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me. God and Father, as we come to your word, speak to us of yourself from it. Let us in it meet with you. Be with all of us sinners as we sit under its preaching that we might hear it. Be with me, a sinner, as I seek to proclaim it. Pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. So here is the question that I found myself reflecting on this morning, and that is, think about your closest relationships, the people that are closest, dearest to you, what are the moments in those relationships that you feel most love? I think our first instinct, if we try to name those moments, is to think of the, the really, like, obvious moments, like, you know, in marriage, like the, the romantic, um, you know, moments of marriage when the candlelit dinners and the violin guys playing. Actually, I've never done that, but, you know, <laughs> those sorts of moments— um, 
And, you know, if it's, if it's, you know, with a child, you're thinking about some, like, vacation or, you know, special, you know, those really memorable times. And those are sweet, but I don't think those are really the most iconic moments of love. Uh, maybe you even think about the more ordinary moments of sweetness and kindness. Just that moment when you look over and see someone looking at you with affection in their eyes. Or that moment when your children just come up and give you a hug, and those are also sweet moments. But at least for me, when I think about it, I think the moments that I most say this is a relationship that involves love are those moments when I realize that I don't deserve it. Those moments when I experience love even though I don't deserve it. It's not the candle at dinners, but it's when I've been an idiot and have to acknowledge that fact to my wife, and she chooses to forgive me and love me. Those moments when I have lost my temper with my children and yelled at them and had to apologize to them, but they still come and hug me and show that love. Have you experienced those kinds of moments? Because I was thinking about those moments as I sat with this psalm. Because I think it, this psalm is sort of about that. I mean, God loves you, right? That is the most, like, elementary, basic, you know, your, that, you know, your kid, the first song they learn a lot of times if they, you know, if they grew up in a Christian family is that Jesus loves me. And you, you ask anyone on the street to name a Bible verse, and it's almost certainly going to start with, for God so loved. Um, it is, that, that idea is so ingrained in everybody that we, we all know that, except somehow I think we don't. In the first place, I know a lot of people who would be able to state that idea as true, who really struggle to believe it in their hearts. I meet those people all of the time outside of the church, people who just say, you know, pastor, uh, Christianity just can't be for me, the church just can't be for me because I've got all these sins or this history or these bad habits, that somehow those things they think preclude God's love. And I encounter it all the time in the church with people who feel like if you only knew the, the secret things in their hearts, those dark places, that somehow God could never love them. And I think a lot of other people somehow also miss God's love because they hear that statement and they think, well, of course God loves me because after all, look at how great I am. And, um, and <laughs> that maybe makes them profess it, but really I think that's equally a denial of love. Uh, right? The, the clerk at the store um, who gives me my groceries does not do it because he loves me, right? He does it because I've paid him. And if love is simply a mutual exchange of services where I'm great and so God thinks that I'm great, right? That's, we're not talking about love anymore. We're talking about a transaction. And that's why I think that God's love, just like human love, is something that comes particularly into focus when we're talking about receiving it when we don't deserve it. I, um, you know, I might in my particularly good moments suspect that my wife loves me only because, you know, of the nice things I do for her and the things that, you know, that I contribute to our marriage. But it's only in those undeserved moments where I have to acknowledge, no, like, you love me for something more than that. And I think this psalm is reflecting on how God loves us in that way, too. But let's, that's getting ahead of ourselves a little bit. Let's start walking through this psalm and see how it sounds that theme. First of all, before we talk about that love, we need to notice that, well, that we don't deserve it. 
this psalm does remind us of our undeserving. Um, And that comes on two levels that we don't deserve it. First, the psalm stresses that we are frail and small when it comes to God that we don't have much to offer him. So we find that imagery that starts in verse 13, actually, where it says, As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. Uh, this is going to become more apparent in the next few verses, but when we, th- when we hear God, you know, loves us like a father loves his children, it's maybe just worth, we, we import all of these modern ideas, I think, into that image that aren't necessarily there in the ancient world where everybody's kind of teetering on the brink of starvation and life is just a lot harder. There isn't the same romanticism to kids that we always bring. Um, people were much more a- a- aware of the fact that children were kind of challenge and a burden. Um, Aristotle, for instance, uh, asks the question whether children are human beings, and his conclusion is, no, they are not. Um, They are basically animals because they're ruled by their appetites and have no restraint. Um, He does go on to make a case for why you should care for your children, but I think something like that is a little more um, what the Bible often reminds us as. Now, Just to be clear, the Bible is not saying we should view our children as animals, all right? Um, There are some good things that have changed. But when we hear that God loves us like a father loves his children, I think we tend to hear that God loves us the way, like, he thinks we're just so cute and adorable that he just wants to pinch our cheeks and spoil us, right? But that's not the picture, I think. Instead, God loves us the way a father loves um, their children, even though they can be selfish and are constantly needy. And are inconvenient, right? It's God loving us the way you love your child while they're throwing a tantrum in the grocery store and you're feeling embarrassed and you can't figure out how to make them stop. And I think that's, that's why, that's the image we need because when you go on then in verse 14, when God says what that means, he says we're like children in that we're helpless. He says, for he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. That's alluding back to the picture in Genesis of God creating human beings by scooping up dirt from the ground and breathing life into it. And there is an intimacy to that picture in Genesis. Um, All of the other creatures, God speaks, but with humanity, God comes down and gets his hands dirty. But there is also a humility in that picture because it's saying that we are not gold or steel, but we are dirt. And just as we are made from dust, He then says, so ultimately we will return to it. Uh, In the next verses, the life of mortals is like grass. They flourish like a flower of the field. The wind blows over it and it is gone, and its place remembers it no more. God is eternal. When the mountains had not begun to rise up from the ocean floor, he was already infinitely old. And next to eternity, any of our lives are just this brief flash. I think that's easy for us to lose sight of because we live in this day-to-day kind of world. But you, th- you think about, like, leaving a legacy, right? Which many people in our world, I think they would say that's their greatest ambition. And that is, in many ways, a good ambition, to leave a good legacy. But even that is ultimately a really small thing. I was thinking this week about this. Our church here at Kish was founded in the 1840s. That's 170 years ago, right? And um, 
When it was founded, there were a group of people who loved Jesus and loved their children and their families, and they had stories, and they had ambitions, and they had dreams, and they were surrounded by more people like that who had these stories and ambitions and dreams. In 1840, there were like a million people in Illinois, right, um, who were like that. How many of those people can you name? More than that, how many of those people do you know, those, like, stories and dreams that they had, right? That, you know, that, that woman who was so crazy smart, that guy who made all this money and everybody knew who he was. How many of those people can you remember 170 years later? Uh, the reality of the world is that 170 years from now, that's prob- basically going to be true of all of us as well. Right? That we will disappear beneath the waters of time. That we will flourish like the grass, like the wildflowers. And there will be a beauty to it, but it's a fleeting beauty. Um, And the seasons will change and we will vanish. So we are frail and small and fleeting. And the psalm reminds us we are also sinful. We are undeserving because of our sin. In verses 9 and 10. While it's talking about God's forgiveness, which we'll get to in a minute, because that's the point of all this, but he will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve, or repay us according to our iniquities. Um, So God, in the first place, it says, will not always accuse, um, or harbor his anger forever, but that is a reminder that our sins do have consequences, right? And there is a seriousness to them. More than that, though, that he won't treat us as our sins deserve, which is a reminder that what God is showing us is always mercy and not um, what we deserve. See, there's this, um, there's this danger, I think, in showing mercy. It can happen, um, like one of the hard things in parenting is that you, you don't want to always give your children the full consequences for their actions, right? If you did that, no child would survive childhood. Um, but at the same time, you, you, you struggle in, in moments because you, you, if you show them mercy, you know that they might conclude that what they did wasn't actually bad, right? That, that, that you, if you just say, look, it's, it's, I'm going to forgive you, I'm going to, to not, you know, give you the consequences of this action, it is so easy for them to then conclude, oh, so it must not be a big deal. And I think that that is a danger in how we can heal, handle Christianity as well. That our response to God's mercy can too easily become, of course, right? Because we think that maybe our sins aren't a big deal. And so the point of both of that, of our sin and of our frailty, is to remind us that when we talk about God's love, um, if our response is to be like, well, duh, he loves me. I mean, look at how great I am. That that is a flawed response. That when we're talking about God's love, we are talking about something that we don't deserve that he doesn't owe us, that he doesn't have to show us. But, like we said, that's only one of the struggles. And the other side of it is that while we are undeserving, God does love us. God loves us anyway. The psalm starts with this picture of God's love in the past. It's calling back to his work of delivering Israel out of Egypt, where it says, The Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses and his deeds to the people of Israel. 
And um, starting in September, we're actually going to preach through the book of Exodus. So we're not going to go into a lot of detail about that now because we're going to talk about it a lot more then. But in a nutshell, God chooses Israel not because Israel is great and awesome. He chooses them because he chooses them. Um, But because of that choice of them, God loves and protects them. They groan under oppression in Egypt, and God hears and moves to deliver them. Um, simply because he loves them and has chosen them, and for no reason beyond that. And so the psalmist reminds us of that piece of Israel's history, and then he uses that to make a general point. Um, So um, because of his love, God, for example, responds to our sin with forgiveness. So Psalm 103.8, the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in love. Um, That's his character. And then because of that, what we already read, he does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. So God forgives our sins rather than punishing them. And it's a total and final forgiveness. If you look at the imagery in verses 11 and 12, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. And the point of those images, right, is that that, that's a limitless forgiveness. When it says, as far as the east is from the west, that's saying that you start going east, and you go east until until you're not going east anymore, you've reached west, right? Which is never. (laughs) That is how far away God has put our sins from us. As high as the heavens are above the earth, right? You you know, you go up, and at what point do you hit the ceiling? You don't. Um, That's how high and great his love for us is. So it's an image of his love. Um, it's also, it's worth noting, if you, if you were wondering, in verse 11 it says that God's love is for those who fear him. You see that same idea in verse 18 when it talks about those who keep his covenant and obey his commandments. And I think that's maybe the part that some of us can struggle with because we hear that and then we think, well, is that me? Because we're reading that as if it's saying that somehow you fear and obey God and that earns you his love. Um, but that doesn't quite fit, and here's why. Um, So these forgiven people, it says, fear God, right? That's the kind of order. God forgives them their sins, and they're those people who fear him. But they're also forgiven, right? They're clearly not these people who start off as righteous. Somehow they are people who are forgiven and the people who fear God at the same time. And the reason for that um, is that both of those things stem from being in relationship with God. That's the background of the psalm. God loves us, and we move into relationship with him, and so he forgives our sins. And God loves us, and we move into relationship with him, and so we are taught to fear him and to seek to obey his commandments. So that second part does matter, right? If, if you don't fear and, um, you know, and you're not seeking to grow and change and obey God, that might well be a sign that you're not really in relationship with him. But that is not the grounds on which you get your forgiveness or the relationship. The relationship and the forgiveness come first, separate from that. And so while those things can be a good evidence that you're in a relationship with God, you cannot think that what this psalm is saying is that you earn your forgiveness and earn a relationship by being obedient enough and fearing God enough. Our obedience um, and love for God are always imperfect, and it is always God's love for us that comes first and draws us in. So we have that, but then, um, but then the next question is why? Why does God love us like this? Um, and that answer starts in verse 17. 
So David just said in the psalm, in the verses before, it's what we read already about how we are frail and fleeting like dust, you know, like flowers that disappear in the wind. But then he says, but from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him and his righteousness with their children's children. So our lives are fleeting, but God's love is from everlasting to everlasting. And that's because God is from everlasting to everlasting. Verse 19 The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. So God's love is not measured by us, but it is measured by his might and power, by his reign and kingdom, and by his eternity. And that is nudging up on this idea that I think is behind this psalm and is so important, and that we so often, I think, don't really get our heads around. Um, The question we asked was, why does God love us, right? And, um, and like we said earlier, it isn't because we're great. We don't have anything to offer God in comparison to him. We're small and frail. And it isn't because we are good. We are often sinful and turn astray. God loves us simply because God chooses to love us. It isn't because of something in us. It is because of something within himself. When the Old Testament talks about God's love, it uses a particular word for it. It does in this psalm. The Hebrew of the word is chesed. And chesed is not the word that you would normally use in the Old Testament for like starry-eyed romantics gazing into each other's eyes or even for like spouses or friends. Um, It's a different kind of word. If you have an older translation, it might be translated loving kindness to try to show like this is a different word for love. But that's not really right either. Um, it's occasionally used of human beings. And when it is, it's used in contexts where like, it's like a king. You know, someone is a king, and someone else comes to that king and says, your majesty, can you, can you help me with this problem? Can you give me some grain? Can you give me some gold? I don't, I don't have anything to give you, but just because I'm your subject and you're my king, can you do this for me? And the king's response then of generosity and love to that subject would be chesed. But mostly the word is just used of God. And um, it carries something like that sense. But it's the sense that God chooses his people as his people. Just, he chooses them because of his own good pleasure. And then he loves those people simply because of that choice and his promised faithfulness to that choice. Um, you, could, you could translate it as God's promised love. Or if you're being theological, God's covenant love. That he promises to love us, and because he promises and chooses to love us, so he loves us, and he's faithful to that. All of which is to say again that the reason for God's love is not something in us, but it is something in himself. That is also why when you see God's love um, communicated, it is almost, it's, it's, it's overwhelmingly using words like mercy and compassion and grace, right? Because the point of all of those words is to communicate that it's not based on something in me. When I do something wrong and receive mercy, I am not getting, you know, the thing that that depends on me, right? I'm getting something that depends on the other person. And here's why that idea, that God loves us just because of something in himself, simply because he chooses to, is so important. When we first hear it, I think we dislike it, because we're like, but what about me, right? Like, don't, don't I deserve this stuff? Um, we think that somehow it's less certain because it's a God's free choice. 
But that idea is actually the opposite. It's the best news imaginable because it means that we can rest securely in God's love despite all of our uncertainty and failures and frailty. The Apostle Paul puts it like this when he writes um, his final letter to his protege, Timothy. Um, he, he says this. He says, This saying is trustworthy in 2 Timothy 2. He says, First, if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. He's talking about Jesus here. And then he says, If we deny him, he will also deny us, which is hard, but is Paul's way of saying, like, it does rest on that relationship, right? If you refuse that relationship and being in that relationship, you don't, you don't think that you're going to get the benefits. But then in verse 13, he says this, and this is the really striking part. He says, if we are faithless, and we think it's going to be another one of those statements, well, then God will forsake us, right? But it doesn't. It says, if we are faithless, God remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Do you see what he's trying to say in that last piece there? God is faithful to us. God loves us, not because of something in us, not because of our faithfulness, but simply because of something in himself. That he will never abandon you in his love. He will never turn from you in his love. Um, it doesn't matter your sins or your struggles or your past or your future because you don't matter. And that is a sweet and beautiful hope, right? Hallelujah. Like, I don't matter in terms of God's love. And that means that I can rest secure because regardless of what's going on with I am in relationship with him. I am forgiven and welcomed in and at peace. God's love is based on his greatness, not on our weakness. That's the glorious truth of God's love. It is undeserved love, and we come to him, and even though we don't deserve it, we receive it anyway, simply because he chooses to show it to us. So then how should we respond, right? How should we live that out? Well, the point of this psalm is a simple one. It is simply to call us to praise God for that love. This proclamation of God's love is within the context of praise. So if you go back to verse 1 of the psalm, Praise the Lord my soul, all my inmost being praise his holy name. He's rousing himself, talking to himself, saying, Come on, soul, get up, praise the Lord. And then verse 2, Praise the Lord my soul and forget not all his benefits. The psalmist is praising God, but it's not just praise the Lord because he's great and awesome. Now that, that is a good reason to praise God, but here it's praise the Lord and recognize the benefits he shows you. And then what are those? Verses 3 through 5, who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion, who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagle's. These are all images of that love that God shows us. So he forgives all your sin, which is what we just talked about. He heals all your diseases, which might sound like a challenging one to some of us because, you know, Christians get sick, right, and get diseased. But that's not a statement that—but um, but there's two things there. One is just that's focused on the fact that healing is from God. I think we assume that, like, the healing is what we deserve, right, and the disease is somehow abnormal— but in this broken and messed up world, in many ways, like, the disease is a normal part. And if healing comes, it is a gift of God. But more than that, that, um, 
the, the word that this psalm uses for disease here um, is not like the normal word for being sick. It's only used a few other times in the Old Testament. And in every one of those times, um, it's a specific disease that comes as a result of God's judgment, right? So it's people who are, you know, who are, um, who have some sort of affliction because of evils that they have done in the world. And in that sense, it connects with the first thought. God forgives our sins, um, and he heals us even from the afflictions and consequences that we face because of them. And then he redeems our lives from the pit. Um, so it's not just those sins and consequences, but death itself that we're delivered from ultimately. Our sin warrants death, but God brings resurrection. And he crowns us with love and compassion. So not just that we don't get what we deserve, but we get even more. We get what we don't deserve, right? That God takes, um, you know, he, he puts a crown on our head. A crown that marks us as loved by him. He satisfies our desires with good things. By desires, the psalm doesn't mean our sinful desires. Sometimes I think we start to read it that way. He doesn't mean he's going to give us everything our selfishness wants. But he gives us what we truly need. What we truly and most deeply long for in our hearts. And so our youth is renewed like the eagles. God gives us strength to endure and walk through the world and ultimately life at the end. All of that is a picture of God's love working our salvation. And so we're being called to praise God because he has worked in those ways to save us. He has chosen to love us. And in that love, we have forgiveness and welcome and friendship and life. And so that should draw our hearts to give praise. One of the reasons I think we don't have a lot of that praise is because we easily take for granted everything that we've just said this morning it's like it's like we live in a place in the world that is very materially blessed right and it is easy for us to take all of these material blessings for granted um, and people notice that when they travel to different parts of the world right different cultures and parts of the world are all beautiful and unique and awesome in their own ways but many of them are not as well off as the united states and you suddenly realize like man air conditioning most people don't have air conditioning in the world. Um, you know, I mean, like, um, running water that you can drink right out of the tap. You know, I mean, clean streets. Like, these, these are things that I don't even think about in my daily life, right? But that suddenly I recognize, like, that's not necessarily what's owed. And many people don't have that. Um, obviously, I can't, whenever I'm feeling ungrateful, hop in an airplane and go visit some other country, as cool as that would be. But, so, but what we do, right, is we recognize that fact, is we try to remind ourselves of that. It's what we, we tell our children, right? We're like, you know, like, not every kid gets, you know, this, these, all these toys or all these clothes or whatever. And we, it's something that we try to remind ourselves of, right, when we're feeling ungrateful. Just, just stopping and reflecting on all that we have. That is exactly the pattern that I think happens when it comes to God's love and grace as well. We are blessed in God's kingdom beyond, you know, our wildest imagination. Like, we, we don't deserve mercy, right? We don't deserve forgiveness. We don't deserve God's presence and faithfulness and all of the other things that he gives us. Um, but we fail to take notice of those things, too. And we often take them for granted. And so the habit that we need to cultivate in our hearts is to remind ourselves of the reality of those blessings that we have in him. The reality of our need and the reality of God's free choice to love us. That we need to constantly be reminding ourselves of that. 
Not just once, right? I'm not just saying that, like, I think we have this idea that when you become a Christian, you receive that grace, and you're grateful, and that sort of changes some things. But I mean, daily, we need to cultivate this, um, this habit of reflecting on those things. When we talk about repentance and faith, what we're really talking about is that daily rhythm of repentance, of acknowledging our undeserving, and then of faith, of recognizing and claiming and believing in God's love for us today. We should do that all the time, in a sense. It should almost be like breathing. We sin and fail and repent and trust in God's love and experience that cycle. But if that's something that um, you're not in that place of doing, and, and let me just suggest maybe that thing we just described, like try to just make a habit of taking some time, you know, each, each day to reflect on that love. Take a time of day, maybe while you're praying or out jogging or getting ready for bed, and just spend a few minutes reflecting on that process, reflecting on that reality that we do not deserve these things that God has given us. And then moving from that to reflect joyfully on the fact that God gives them to us anyway. To, remo- to sit and just reflect on our sins and our failures today and the things we've done, to acknowledge those things before God, and then to, in the reality that we are forgiven of those things, even as we name them to him, that God loves us and welcomes us in. We need to cultivate that habit because the good news is, and I'll say it one more time, right? God does love you. He has fixed his love on you from eternity past. He knows all of those dark things in your heart. He knows your sins and failures, and he has chosen to love you anyway simply because of his own mercy and compassion. And the invitation for you is to come and experience that love. Whether that's for the first time or the thousandth time, to come and meet with him as he shows that mercy and kindness to you. Let's pray and then let's sing praises to our God who loves us so. God and Father, I give you thanks that you love me, (laughs) that you love us and that that is a reality simply because of who you are pray that you would be with us now and help us to experience that undeserved unmeasurable love amen